I've never quite understood how actors and actresses could do love scenes. I mean, even before the days of steamy, sordid scenes, which should not have been done. <laughs> I understand people loving each other and wanting to express that passionately. That makes sense. But how do you do that on cue? Under the scrutiny of a director? For the 40th take? <laughs> Seems like something's lost and it's not like love anymore. I say that because that's a bit how I feel uh, preaching on Ruth. I love reading and coming to understand this wonderful love story, but how can you just freeze the story and analyze it? <laughs> how, how can I evaluate the plans and the motives of the characters without ruining the mystery? How can I teach the great theology that's being woven through the story without turning it from a wonderful story into a lecture? We're almost finished with the book, and I haven't figured out how to do it yet. My fear is that we're going to finish, and I still won't know. So keep reading the book as we keep coming back and talking about Keep reading the story about uh, this wonderful tale of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Today we look at chapter 3. Let's uh, read it, and I'll attempt once more to think about it. <clears throat> One day Naomi, her, mother, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he said. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I, am a near, that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. And, but if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And so she lay at his feet until the morning, but got up before anyone could re be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured it poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. 
as I've read and uh, reflected on this passage, uh, this chapter this week, and read a lot about it, two uh, exhortations weigh on me that I would like to share with you from uh, this story. And the first is this. Dare to plan for what God promised. Dare to plan for what God promised. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1, we have a definition of faith. It says this is the uh, English Standard Version, which is kind of a traditional translation. The faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Might I suggest that in our day it would more often be true to say that faith is a feeling of assurance that we have in response to what we have seen God do. A feeling of assurance in response to what we've seen God do. Now you might notice there's a big difference in those two statements. One is an assured conviction based on God's promise, though nothing has happened yet. The other is an emotional response to what God has done after we've seen it. Now both of those are faith in some sense, but one is daring and bold, believing God's promise against all odds. The other is soft and weak, only responding to what we see God do. This morning I would suggest that in Ruth chapter 3 we have examples of that first bold and daring faith. Faith that dares to plan for what God has promised. Now in order to understand what's going on in this chapter, we need a little background. Already back in chapter 2, in verse 20, we had the idea of a kinsman redeemer introduced. Naomi had said of Boaz, that man is our close relative, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And now in chapter 3, that concept becomes the the, uh, indispensable underlying reality that makes the whole story make sense in chapter 3. Now we don't have kinsmen redeemers in our culture, so let me explain a little bit what this is about. This, this is actually two Old Testament concepts, two Old Testament provisions that have kind of run together into one. It's the teaching about the goel, or, or redeemer, and it's the teaching about the leveret, or from the word that means husband's brother. First, the concept of the goel, or the redeemer. The society which God established in ancient Israel was to be a closely knit community of, of, with strong family ties. In addition to being that close-knit community, it was to be a community deeply rooted in the land which God had given them, land which, of which he still claimed ownership, though it was entrusted to them family by family, parcel by parcel. So when a family member got into trouble, God made it the duty of his close relative to act as a redeemer uh, to take care of him. So, for example, if the man had to sell his land, the relative was to buy it back so that it was not lost to the family. Or if a man became so destitute that he sold himself into slavery, the, the, the goel, the redeemer, was to, to buy him out of slavery, to redeem him. Or if someone killed a man, the close relative became the avenger of blood, to bring justice on the murderer. 
concept of the goel, the redeemer, the close relative who redeems his family member. Now, coupled with that concept is the concept of the leveret. In a society in which land and family were everything, for a man to die without descendants meant the end of his family line and the end of his inheritance. And so God ordained that if a man died before he had any children, his brother or the next closest relative was to marry his widow and the first child that was born would be considered to be the heir, the, 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 uh, the child of the now deceased brother. Thus a man's line of descent and his family heritage would be preserved. So to understand what's going on in Ruth chapter 3, you have to understand about these God-ordained traditions of the Goel and the Leveret, which had kind of all merged together into this notion of the kinsman redeemer, the near relative redeemer. Folks, this is a wonderful picture of Christ that we have here. That's what's being foreshadowed in this story. We don't have it coming out at us all the time, but that's what's going on here. And that's what this whole Advent season is about. That God became our brother in the person of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, to walk in our shoes. He did that that he might be our kinsman redeemer, who would buy us out of sin slavery at the cost of his own death on the cross, who would... Uh, restore to us the inheritance of the earth, which was lost in our fall into sin, and would marry us, make us his bride, his church, to bear fruit for God. Oh, don't miss this great truth. This is, is, is what the book is about. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, though Naomi and Ruth and Boaz don't know anything about that yet. God does. Well, our, so chapter 3 begins with uh, Naomi reflecting on this idea of the kinsman redeemer. She has taken note that Boaz, in whose fields Ruth has been gleaning every day, is a relative of hers. And she's noticed that Boaz has been more than just a little kind. To Ruth. And so her maternal wheels begin to turn and she begins to think. She dares to dream in terms of this custom that God had established in his law. Wait a minute, what we really need here is someone to buy my property so that we would not be in poverty. Someone to marry Ruth so that we would have descendants. And Boaz is such a relative. Might it be that Boaz would become our kinsman redeemer? Our, 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 our savior in this situation. Who would raise up descendants, not for Naomi who had had two sons, but for Ruth whose husband had died. Whose husband was the son of Naomi. And as she thought about it, it began to make sense. This could happen. Maybe this is happening. Maybe this is what this 
affection that I hear about in going in the fields is about. And you see, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just the wild-eyed dreaming of a paperback novel. It's Naomi daring to plan for what God had outlined in his word. And so in verses 1 to 5, Naomi instructs Ruth concerning her plan. She gives explicit instructions. Dress up, go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be spending the night guarding his grain. And wait till the partying is over and take careful note of where Boaz lays down, lies down. And then um, when he's asleep, go and cover his feet and, uh, and lie there. And then wait for him to tell you what to do. Now there are a lot of things about that that we don't understand and we don't know. Why not just sit down and reason with Boaz? I don't know. Why set up this potentially disastrous scene on the threshing floor at night? I don't know. How does she know that Boaz won't be angry and incensed at this forwardness from this young woman? I don't know. Does she trust Boaz that completely? Apparently. Does she know something we're not told? Probably some things. All we know is that Naomi understood what God had established. It's the fact that Boaz is her relative, her near relative, her kinsman. That's what's driving this action as she dares to plan based on what God has said in his word. But it was, the boldness wasn't just on Naomi's part. Ruth proved to be a pretty spunky young woman herself. She willingly does what her mother-in-law says until she is lying at Boaz's feet. But when Boaz awakes, startled to find her there and says, who are you? Rather than just do what Naomi said and wait for, see what Boaz would say, she says, I am Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. For you are a kinsman redeemer. There's been a great deal of discussion about what happened on the threshing floor. We're going to talk a little bit more about it in a minute. But right now I just want you to see what Ruth's goal was. What Ruth's thinking was in, in, in whatever happened on the threshing floor. The key is the meaning of this phrase, spread your garment over me. The phrase is used only one other time in the Bible, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. There the Lord is talking about his relationship to Israel. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. In other words, the Lord says, I married you. I made you my bride. Well, you see what's happening here? Ruth goes to the threshing floor and asks. Naomi didn't tell her to do this. She just said, see what, do whatever Boaz says. But she takes the initiative and she asks Boaz, subtly but clearly, to marry her. So it says in verse 9, spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are a kinsman redeemer. In the midst of this romantic kind of situation, she's not talking about buying property. She's offering herself as a bride. 
Folks, this is a woman of bold faith. Daring to believe that God might do what he said, that God's law might work the way he said it should work. That the custom that God had ordained might be the answer to their family in this, in this culture. And taking bold, daring steps to pursue such a plan. She dared to plan for what God promised. Indeed, this whole chapter is filled with this. It starts with Naomi's faith planning. It continues with Ruth in faith, daring to ask for what might seem impossible. And it ends with Naomi and Ruth waiting in faith to see what would happen. Hoping. Faith dares to plan for what God promised. And before we move on, let me just challenge you with that a minute. Folks, God has promised us a lot more than, than Naomi and Ruth knew about. Indeed, he has sent a redeemer who's way more than Boaz ever was. Do we believe that? Do we in faith embrace the Lord Jesus as our redeemer? Well, sure, we say we do. If so, do you dare to believe that he really will do what he said he would do? You know, he says rather remarkable things like all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Like that he will bring everything in heaven and earth under his lordship. That he will free us from sin's bondage and he will make us holy. That, that, he, that, he's, that we, he, we should go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the good news that can change his worst enemies into his dear children. Do we believe those things? If so, do we dare to plan accordingly? Or are we grumbling and licking our wounds and wallowing in the defeat of sin and afraid to go out in the world and speak of a redeemer lest the world gobble us up? This morning I call you to dare to believe what God said enough to plan accordingly. To plan for things that you've never seen happen but that God says are his will. Oh, but we're not done with Ruth 3. There's another important lesson that we need to learn here. And that's this. Yes, we plan boldly. But then pursue your plans with righteousness. Pursue your plans with righteousness. I often get comments from you about a sermon after I've preached it. Normally good comments. People that don't like it normally are gracious enough to not say much. But after every Sunday I get some comments, perhaps. I almost never get comments about a sermon I haven't preached. Except this time. In the last week or two, uh, three different people have asked me about this sermon, though I hadn't even prepared it yet. And the question is all this, always the same. What are you gonna do about that threshing floor business? <laughs> Yeah, what am I going to do with that? It looks rather suspicious, even on first reading, doesn't it? I believe that what we have here is a picture of monumental righteousness. I'll tell you right up front, that's what I think it is. Righteousness which challenges us concerning our own integrity. Now that's not how everybody sees it. Some have seen um, uh, a sexual encounter 
taking place on the threshing floor between uh, Boaz and Ruth. We know that uh, the harvest is a festive time and that uh, it was also often a time of loose morals, probably still is in many parts of the world. In fact, the threshing floor itself was known as, as, as a place associated with immoral fertility rituals. And we cannot escape the fact that the story is heavy with sexual innuendo, lying near one another alone in the middle of the night. The secrecy of it all. Get up and leave before anyone can recognize you. Even the phrase, uncover his feet, we know was sometimes used as a euphemism for uh, sexual intimacy. But there are reasons to believe that nothing immoral happened on that threshing floor that night. Indeed, that Ruth and Boaz behaved with exemplary righteousness. First, let's talk about Ruth. We already explained the meaning of her request, spread your garment over me. It was not a request that I want to get under the covers and sleep with you. It was a phrase describing a marriage proposal. But there's another thing that makes it clear that Ruth had a noble purpose in mind, and, and that's in the language she uses. Remember back in chapter 2 when Boaz commends Ruth, we read back in chapter 2, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the de death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. <laughs> May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Great statement about Ruth's faith, and a great prayer for Ruth based on her faith. Well, an interesting thing happens as Ruth speaks to Boaz on the, this night on the threshing floor. She picks up the same kind of language which Boaz had used. The words under his wings that Boaz had used to describe her under the Lord's wings are almost exactly the same words as spread your garment over me. Garment and wings are the same word. May the Lord bless you, for you've come under his wings, Boaz says. And she said, would you spread your wings over me? In other words, Ruth takes Boaz's prayer for her, that God would be her covering, and, he turn, and she turns it around and asks Boaz to answer his own prayer, would you be God's covering over me in marriage? This is not an impulsive sexual thing going on. This is a godly, righteous plan which Ruth is pursuing that's consistent with her faithfulness. Indeed, in Boaz's response, we hear something of the nobility of this woman. In verse 10, he commends her hesed, her kindness, not only to Naomi, but to him. In other words, Boaz understands that while Ruth could easily have gone out and gone after, just after some young guy, instead she has pursued him, who is not her peer, but Naomi's relative, probably old enough to be her father. She'd been married to Naomi's son, you know. And why does she do that? 
in order to see Naomi's family preserved through this kinsman redeemer, Costin. Ruth's action is selfless here. It's a matter of resting under God's wings and claiming his promises to see his will being done. Indeed, there's no question about her integrity for uh, Boaz tells us directly in verse 11, all the townspeople know that you are a woman of noble character. And he uses the exact same term that's used in Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, who's a woman of noble character. Well, I'm not saying there's no love going on here. I believe there's great love that had grown between Ruth and Boaz. I just believe that on that threshing floor that night that Ruth acted with integrity. She pursued her plans with righteousness. Now that raises the question then why all of the sexual overtones of this story? And I don't have an answer for that, but let me just suggest a possibility that uh, comes to mind. Ruth is a Moabite by birth. Do you know who the Moabites were? The Moabites came from another night with other young women and an older man. Lot and his two daughters who got him drunk and said we need to have some children to preserve our family and so in his drunkenness seduced him and had children, and thus came the Moabites. Now we have a situation here that is filled with sexual innuendo, and it's one of these hot, steamy situations, and you say, what's going on here? Is Ruth the Moabite going to act like the Moabite? No. Ruth is not the Moabite. She's the faithful daughter of Abraham not the daughter of Lot in fact there's another situation remember Tamar and Judah Judah had a son married Tamar was wicked God killed him the second son took Tamar to be his wife he was wicked God took his life Judah says, I have a third son, but he's not old enough. You wait, Tamar, and you can marry my third son. But he had no intention of doing that. And after years had passed and nothing had happened, Tamar, on another harvest time, sat beside another threshing floor, this time all dressed up like a prostitute, a, a temple prostitute, to, to some of the sexual ritual that goes on on the threshing floor. And Judah came and was enticed and uh, went into her and bore children. Is that what's going on here? And as the reader reads and sees all of the sexual innuendo and another threshing floor and another time and another leveret kind of marriage situation, oh yeah, I've heard this story before, this is going to be Tamar and Judah all over again. No, it's not. What we have here is quite a striking difference. We have Ruth pursuing her plans in righteousness, not like a Canaanite prostitute. 
Oh, but uh, Ruth's not the only one. Boaz also pursues his plans with righteousness. We don't know a lot about what was going on in Boaz's mind. We don't know a lot about how Boaz was sorting through this whole situation. I read uh, a sermon by John Piper, who some of you know, and he had quite an interesting uh, uh, little take on how this developed, and I thought it would be worth reading to you, although it's, uh, it's uh, several uh, lines. Let me read you this paragraph from John Piper about Boaz. He says, it's not easy for an older man to express love to a younger woman. Boaz did it with deeds of kindness and subtle words of admiration. He said he admired her for coming under God's wings. He acted as though she were under his, and he waited. And in the course of time, Naomi and Ruth hit upon a response just as subtle, just as profound. Ruth will come to him in his sleep in the grain field where he has taken her under his care, and she will say yes. But she will say it with an action just as subtle and profound as the action and words of Boaz. She puts herself under his wing, so to speak, and when he wakes, everything hangs on one sentence and whether Ruth has interpreted Boaz correctly. Imagine how fast her pulse was racing when Boaz awoke. Then the all-important words, I am Ruth, spread your wing over your maidservant. There had to have been an immense silence for a moment while Boaz let himself believe that this magnificent young woman had understood. Had really understood. Had so profoundly and sensitively understood. A middle-aged man in love with a young widow whom he discreetly calls my daughter, uncertain whether her heart might be going after younger men, communicating the best he can that he wants to be God's wings for her. And a young widow gradually reading, into the, reading between the lines and finally ready to risk an interpretation by coming in the middle of the night to take refuge under the wing of his garment. That's powerful stuff. And anyone who thinks that a loose woman and a finagling mother-in-law are at work here must be on another planet. All is subtle, but all is righteous. Now Piper's right. Then here's the moment that Boaz has longed for. It's the perfect situation. No one is around. They are alone, alone at last. No hired hands, no other young gleaners or pickers. Ruth has just offered herself to him, revealing where her heart is. And he has just promised, I will do what you ask, revealing where his heart was. And now what happens? By the way, young people, this is why long engagements are not good. <laughs> so once you get to that point, it's really tough to maintain sexual purity for two or three years. <laughs> Everybody says, well, go with your heart, go with your feelings. Oh no, it's not what happened. Look at how Boaz responds. He agrees to her request. Yes, I will certainly do what you say. And then he stands back and he says, but let me explain something to you. Yes, I am your kinsman. But the truth is, there is a closer relative than me. 
And he has rights too. And nothing can happen between us until we know what his intentions are. So in the morning, you go home, and I'll take care of this. Oh, do you see what happened? Right in the middle of that powerful, romantic moment, Boaz held on to his heart and acted with integrity. What happened on the threshing floor that night? Extraordinary righteousness. Will this love story come to consummation? Only time will tell. For God's plans must be pursued in righteousness. Not with the passion of the moment that sets aside all that God has spoken. What a challenge this sets before us, huh? We are so led around by our emotions. We're such slaves to our passions in our culture. Even in the church, we have such disregard for holiness. We may have difficulty even conceiving of such a scene as we have set before us here. Perhaps our ready assumption that something immoral must have gone on reflects more on us than it does on Ruth and Boaz. But here we see what Christian holiness looks like. Here we see God's people acting with a pure heart. And we ought to be moved by it. We ought to be moved to repentance, some of us who have failed miserably in such situations. We ought to be moved toward more profound godliness, all of us, to pursue our plans with righteousness. Well, along with Ruth, we have to find, wait to find out what happens. Unless, of course, you read the book and read ahead. And again, we didn't touch on every detail of the story. There's so much more that could be said. But I want you to walk away with some truths that apply to your life, not just a wonderful story. At least these two. Dare to plan for what God promised. Faith is not just responding lovingly to what you see God do and say, yeah, I believe that. Faith is believing that God will do what he said in his word, even though it looks absolutely impossible. But God said it. And I'll begin to move in that direction. And then secondly, pursue those plans in righteousness. Folks, the end, no matter how righteous it is, the end does not justify the means. No righteous goal justifies unrighteousness. A plan conceived in obedience to God's word must be lived out in obedience to God's word. So pursue your plans in righteousness. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. Thank you more, Lord, that it shows us something of yourself and what our relationship should be to you as we live as pilgrims and strangers in this world. And so help us to learn our lessons well and to enjoy the fact that you painted it for us in a beautiful picture and not in just a, a theology text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.